0: Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Jacqueline Whipler, a PhD candidate in sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Jacqueline joins us to reflect on her shift from not being a fan of theory to being an organizer of the 2020 Junior Theory Symposium. Jacqueline shares what her approach to theory and cookies have in common and uses her research on the experience of queer farmers in rural United States to demonstrate the value of a practice-oriented approach to engaging with the sociological canon. Thank you for joining us today, Jacqueline.
1: Thanks for having me, Kyle.
0: Today on Give Theory a Chance, we're doing something a little bit different. So instead of focusing on a single theorist and working through their ideas and influence, we're going to talk a bit about your relationship to theory and how it's evolved. And and one of the things I find so interesting about this is in our conversations and emails, you've described this progression where you went from having a pretty negative relationship to this idea of theory and the classes that you were taking as an undergrad or even as a graduate student to someone who is presenting at junior theorist symposiums, organizing the next one that's going to be happening in San Francisco. So there's been something that's that's gone on, and I think that will be very illuminating to listeners. So I was hoping we should just we could just start out by going through what did you actually find so horrifying about theory as an undergraduate?
1: As an undergraduate, what I found really terrifying and challenging about theory is I tend to be a fairly concrete thinker. I like examples. And I found reading theory, particularly by you know Marx, Weber, Durkheim, to be so abstract and really challenging for me to see how this was relevant today, to see what they were talking about in examples that I could really relate to and wrap my head around. I think some of them spoke a little bit better to that, but I remember Marx just reading those pages and over and over and over again and having no idea, no idea what was happening. I could not get a grasp at all of Marx and was just horrified, horrified, sick to my stomach. I'm supposed to be able to be in college and read at this point and was completely failing on that.
0: So was it, was it the abstractness of the ideas that was the main problem or was it also just the denseness of the language that we encounter? I mean, unless you're taking philosophy classes, you don't see that type of writing anywhere else.
1: Good question. Yeah, I think the denseness of the writing in some ways it felt like, you know, reading Shakespeare that I wanted there to be this side page that translated it and put it into what these theorists are actually saying is this thing that I really wanted a little bit more of a edited digestible version as an undergraduate.
0: So was there anything that that made it click at that point in time? Really, the whole undergraduate year is just this negative relationship to theory.
1: One of the things that I remember, which is standing out to me right now, I guess two of the things. One is that I was, my professor was fantastic. Professor Mark Dixon at Dartmouth was the professor of that course. And I went into office hours, you know, almost welling tears in my eyes, how stressed out I was. And he was great and sat down with me and really broke down the ideas and helped to explain it. And once having that one-on-one scaffolding with him and having him really be kind and understanding about the fact that as a 19, 20-year-old that this isn't necessarily intuitive was really helpful and relieved a lot of stress. And I'm grateful for him taking that time to do that. And then the second second thing that I remember clicking was we had to do a group project that dove into one of the theorists that maybe we didn't talk about in depth, but with two or three other students, went into the ideas and went into the theory. And I believe our group worked on Irving Goffman and Goffman being something, someone more contemporary and having theories that were relating to presentation of self around. I feel like that helped me click with someone who watched a lot of tv and uh, movies growing up thinking about the dramaturgical was helpful as well as thinking about total institutions as someone who was in college and on sports teams that those type of theories felt easier for me to wrap my mind around
0: so then you went on to graduate school and you had to continue taking theory classes and reading these core theorists and also more contemporary ones did your relationship that start to change or was it still this bit of this thing that you have to do but you're not really enjoying the process?
1: In my theory class I really the second time around in grad school I really enjoyed reading the texts more than I did the first time. Those excerpts were very very brief a couple pages here a chapter there moving through sometimes just one theorist for a week but in other weeks we had multiple theorists and it really really felt like it was building this argument Um, And we had weekly quizzes in the course, so it was kind of a fun way to read and take notes and try to piece things together. And I really enjoyed that process. It felt like a puzzle and each piece was small enough that I could grasp it and then figure out how it made the picture overall. The thing in that course that terrified me, I don't really like speaking in public and that's been something I've had to overcome in grad school mostly because of being a TA and now a lecturer. But the prospect of being cold called in that course was hard and sometimes to the level of so distracting about worrying about being called on that I kind of missed what was going on in the class. So the reading was better, but still had some theory anxiety when you're in a graduate course and trying to not fumble over your words in front of your colleagues.
0: Yeah. And in grad school, there's so much actually thinking of Goffman, a lot of grad school is that presentation of self, right? Where you're yes. you're performing, being intelligent for everyone else, even if... Everyone in the room also has no idea what's going on. Everyone's trying to put that proper face forward.
1: Exactly. And that was something that I felt challenged by, too, of you know, having my colleagues who I really respect, but seeing them rise to this occasion in front of professors that they respect and being like, you're all just kicking tires right now. And I see what you're doing. And I don't want to engage in this. And I'm also just nervous in general about talking. So this that push and pull between I need to speak to get credit, but also I, the way in which people are speaking and engaging is a little bit of a turnoff here. So how to
0: proceed? So some of the people who will be listening to this will be undergrad students who are taking theory for the first time. Mm-hmm. And this this might be challenging, but I'm wondering the first time you read it, you, were, you weren't really getting that much out of it. The second time you're actually enjoying doing the reading a bit more. Was that just because you were doing it again? Maybe you were more mature intellectually at this point, or is there any lessons, are there lessons we can take away from the way you were reading it the second time versus the first time?
1: Yeah, I think some of it is just the time lapse. I think some of it too is the shorter pieces, but also I was doing much more engaged reading the second time. I think the first time was just reading and maybe maybe underlining, but studies do show that underlining is a fairly ineffective way to learn. Whereas when I was reading the second time I was taking notes and that would be writing down page numbers, writing down concepts, writing down what I was reading in my own words and that act of reading really helped me and I haven't taught theory myself at this point, but I have tutored student athletes in sociology theory courses. And that's something that I try to encourage them to do is to do more of this active reading to pause and reflect in the middle of the reading. And oftentimes what we do too in the way in which it helped me to have someone explain it to me is I'll try to put it into my own words for the students and or we go to the great source of YouTube sometimes because there's really great teaching tools on there and particularly for people who might not be great readers who you know I definitely struggle with a little bit with dyslexia that sometimes even hearing it can be a really helpful mechanism so I would definitely encourage undergrads to though I know there are so many different pressures between reading for all your classes and all the assignments and the clubs and your jobs and family commitments, but to try to take a little bit more time with the pages and reflect as you're going along and or maybe go to YouTube.
0: (laughs) Always, or Wikipedia. (laughs) Yes. And which is actually a lot of people, academics, we have this history of steering people away from Wikipedia. Some of the entries on theorists are actually really good. And I always tell students, don't end there. But starting there is it's not a bad place at all. No, again,
1: it's gonna be the scaffolding that you can link onto. I don't think it's yeah where you should end. But if it helps you be like, oh, that's what they're saying. Okay, now I can start linking these other things to it. I think that's gonna be very effective.
0: And so when you were in grad school now, you're you're being exposed to again the classic theorists, but also some more theorists. Were there certain people that you really were inspired by or even actually made more sense this time around?
1: Yeah, I think the Theorists that I felt inspired by were the researchers that were at the whole house and by Du Bois and that was in part the theory but just in part the approach to sociology and the approach to the research that this is research that was done actively engaged with the problems of the day with very identifiable results and not theorizing for theorizing's sake, but theorizing for real-world problems. One of my mentors here at UW is Monica White, who does research on the history and contemporary activism by black farmers. And she theorizes a lot around collective action and community resistance. So not just looking at the ways in which historically marginalized groups have been oppressed, but the ways in which these groups have shown creative solutions, problem solving with and for their communities. So for me, in graduate school, the theorizing that is more linked to social problems and communities and has this broader implications beyond academia has been really motivating, firing for me.
0: Which is interesting because these are some of the theories that often get push, pushed to the edge of the canon, mm-hmm. right? So it's not it hasn't been seen as core, even though they're so clearly sociological and so inspiring and important to read. Exactly. All right, so let's, let's think a little bit about your current relationship to theory. And that's what fascinates me so much and why I really wanted to get you on here. You've gone from this really honest assessment of saying, you know, it's difficult to read at first, starting to get it more, but still being worried about having the right language to describe the theory that you're reading or giving the answer that's appreciated by a larger audience. But now you've gone out and you've presented at symposiums that are oriented directly around the idea of theory. So what is your current relationship to theory? And to make this a really long question, <laughs> not only was your current relationship to theory, but you know, how do you draw on this in your own work, which we haven't had a chance to talk about yet?
1: So I think my current relationship with theory and how I draw on this in my own research could best be described as my favorite food group, which are cookies. And specifically, my favorite type of cookie is really just the kitchen sink, everything that you have in the pantry, walnuts, chocolate chips, oatmeal, honey. And you just throw it all together and end up with something that might, might not make sense for everyone, but I thoroughly enjoy. And you do find the people who also appreciate your baking. And I think that's my current relationship of I'm ethnographer, I'm ethnographer who is researching queer sustainable farmers in the rural Midwest, and there's not necessarily a very clear direction on what theory to take. This isn't a long history of family studies, for example, or other really well-developed areas of research. So I feel like I particularly go back and forth between my data and the theories and can really draw on a diverse range of theories, so I particularly have been trained within traditions of symbolic interactionism and Goffman. I my prelim in social psychology. I speak a lot to my undergrad students about intersectionality. And then there's a whole bunch of research that falls more within maybe these subfields of sexualities or morality or agro food systems. So my current relationship I think is having a wide range of theories that I can draw from and based upon what the data is saying and what I'm learning from these farmers really trying to piece and pull things together into this puzzle or into this cookie that is somehow cohesive and makes sense we met when I was presenting at Junior Theor Symposium that this past year and that was a presentation where I was taking the theories around how different groups are able to find bonds across their differences and pulling together traditional chicago school theories around uh contact theory but drawing in findings from sharif's Roberts cave experiments about you know groups coming together when there is a shared threat and in that presentation also drew in marx Weber, and durkheim i would never expect that in one presentation i would touch on all of the dead white guys but it's been a really fun way to do that well not
0: not every there's a lot of them not everyone <laughs> not everyone but you know yeah. three of them <laughs> yeah
1: and at the same time in that presentation really deeply considering intersectionality because I'm looking at people who are at the intersections of heteronormativity and sexism and at sometimes transphobia and racism. And again, drawing on Monica White's work of not just looking at the ways in which these farmers experience challenges, but the ways in which they are able to overcome and be resilient and demonstrate their wherewithal in the world. So this is a very long answer to your very long question, but I think that kind of symbolizes my or captures my current relationship is this iterative process between a wide range of theories, what my data is saying, and trying to piece together in a way that might not be the standard and might not be within any one canon. But for me and my research, I hope that it ends up making sense and is something that people can digest and get behind and I shouldn't just say di- digest as I'm again using this cookie metaphor, Cookies. but like enjoy, like something that's like, yeah, this is rad. I like this. Give me another one. I hope.
0: The thing I find so inspiring is that your focus is really there's all these great ideas out there, but they're great to me when they work with what I'm seeing in the world. Mm-hmm. They lead me down a path of interesting analysis that will take us somewhere, whether it's somewhere that is about specifically about social activism, whether it's just trying to understand a group in a different way. Um, So that's the goal. But but what I wonder is a lot of times when you go to panels related to sociological theory or cultural studies, you'll see people who are experts in one specific theorist. And the first question you get from the panel is saying, OK, you're using X theorists, Mm -hmm. but as we know, in z book by x theorist in that one paragraph they use a term that could be in whatever language and it actually means this what do you think about that so how do you how do you deal with the experts who are really kind of protectors of that theorist and protector of theory
1: it's funny you bring that up i was in a practice job talk in my department recently and one of my colleagues who was brilliant was using bordia and the first questions were just
0: what you were talking about. Well,
1: Bourdieu talks about this, but isn't that maybe a little bit more?
0: And that's that's always the, that's always the theorist. too. So that's who I was thinking it's of. Always
1: Bourdieu. I was definitely sitting there, just a little bit like, is this where is this getting us? Is this helping us expand our realms of knowledge? Is this pushing the boundaries of what we already know? And while I think that those can be important conversations, I guess I would really try to encourage people to center on what is expanding our knowledge and what is maybe just cycling around minor points that may or may not be even important to this person's work. I have not encountered those types of questions in my work yet and probably need to prepare better answers for when someone is a very ardent, well-read reader of one particular theorist. But I guess I would really try to zoom out a little bit and see the forest uh, rather than just the trees and some of those maybe minute conversations and save those minute conversations for having a beer, enjoying your cookies over a small uh small conversation versus a large room talk or presentation.
0: There's a lot of metaphors now that we have with <laughs> <laughs> there's beer, cookies, and trees at this point.
1: You know, can you tell I'm a Taurus? I'm an earth sign that loves food.
0: And so with the cookie approach is about seeing whether the whether the combinations taste good rather than getting caught up exactly in the specific flour that's being used.
1: Well done, Kyle.
0: All right, so building off of that, we're going on, and, and like I was saying before, a lot of people who listen to this are going to be undergrads who are learning and reading theory for the first time, or grad students who are having to take these theory courses and going to workshops where they hear those questions about, you know, did Foucault mean this if we read the French version of the work versus the translation, which misconstrued or whatever, wherever we want to take it. Do undergrads need to read theory and go through that experience, or does a sociologist need to be... A theorist, whatever we mean by that word, Um, and this is this this, again. It's one of those big abstract questions. But I'm really curious what you think, considering that relationship and trajectory that you've gone on.
1: I would say yes, and surprising my you know self from a decade ago, I would say yes. And we do need theory as undergrads, and we do need theory as sociologists, and that answer is grounded. In two parts. One is in I am lecturing for the first time right now a class sociology of gender and I just had it's a hundred student class and I just had my students complete a mid-semester evaluation of how are things going? What changes would you like to see? But also ask them, is there anything that you have learned in the course that has really stuck with you um, thus far? And a lot of them were talking about intersectionality, that I'm here at Wisconsin. This is a predominantly white institution. There are many students that are from the state of Wisconsin. And coming to Madison is the most diverse racially, and in many other components, most diverse place they've ever been. And for them to be learning about intersectionality in this course where majority of them are non-majors, many of them are going to be going into medical fields, it's changing the way in which they're seeing the world around them. And for me, that's been very powerful to see how much this one theory can do for them and open their eyes in so many different realms of their world. And I really hope that that's something that they carry with them in their interpersonal interactions. But also, again, if they're going into medical fields to recognize that Black women are having many are much different outcomes in maternity, for example, than white women. And to have that knowledge is crucial. And in terms of do sociologists need theory, I think, again, going back to the work of Du Bois and Hull House and, again, Monica White, is I think there is this very strong component of theorizing for today's social problems, theorizing for communities, and trying to actively make a change in those places. And I think that's extremely valuable. And the foundation of the sociological imagination of Seeing something, applying a concept, and being able to articulate what is going on, not just for understanding it, but also that next step of what could happen differently, um, what changes could take place. And that's really powerful for me. A lot of my work with queer farmers is, yes, interviewing and writing papers and the dissertation, but I do a lot of organizing with queer farmers and creating Meetups and conferences and gatherings for them to come together. And they really appreciate having some of these words and languages and larger patterns to understand their experiences. And that's been helpful for me to see, too, that theory isn't necessarily just for those of us who are on our computers all the time, but that theorizing about queer farmers is actually useful to queer farmers themselves.
0: So, in your last answer, one of the things that really interests me is the way you're talking about taking these ideas beyond the classroom or beyond the conference into the community. And so you mentioned that you sometimes are engaged in organizing meetups or, or organizing places for conversation among queer farmers and other people in the community. How does the theories that you've read or the research that you've done, how does that guide that process? Or what is that? what do you hold on to from theory when you're doing that type of work?
1: When I think about the work and activism that I do with queer farmers, I really immediately turn to queer theory, that queer theory is questioning normative assumptions, breaking down binaries and the categories that we hold, and examining the unmarked categories. And particularly in farming, there is this very pervasive dominant notion of the family farm. And baked into that family farm title is a sexual relationship of a family, of a heterosexual family. So when approaching these farming conferences that are largely heterosexual families who are white, encouraging them, and they're also sustainable farmers. So in this way, trying to present on queer farmers and make spaces for queer farmers, but also getting this allyship and this buy-in from straight farmers who are the predominant people there who are still largely involved in the farming industry and really encouraging them of taking this queer perspective, everyone of what can a queer perspective bring to agriculture. So for the straight farmers, Hopefully getting that buy-in by saying you're already doing queer agriculture by doing sustainable practices when you're in the Midwest and so much of the farming is conventional uh, farming of GMO, corn and soybean. And then kind of following that to thinking about at these conferences, who are the spaces for, what types of bathrooms are labeled, what pronouns are asked what types of microaggressions might these queer farmers be facing and then building spaces to be welcoming to the queer farmers. I also really tried to bring a lens of intersectionality and critical race in these rooms as well, because farming is based on colonization and genocide and racism. So in a room that is still queer farmers, but predominantly white, we need to be interrogating these legacies and thinking about intersectionality and who is being centered when we are doing activism. So in that way, the queer theory and the intersectionality deeply involves how I approach farming conferences, whether I'm talking to straight or queer farmers.
0: That is a perfect inspiring note to end on. But I'm going to ask a question that might lead to a less inspiring note to end on. (laughs) Okay. Which is, it? so I'm wondering... When you bring that perspective to these conferences, what type of reception do you get? Because those are pretty challenging ideas that, you know, even even in academia, even at conferences, when you confront people with this history and you confront people with who's being marginalized, who's being silenced sometimes you get pushback and negative reactions or people aren't willing to be reflexive in that way. So I'm curious, what happens when you do that in a space like a farming conference?
1: I have not gotten personal feedback. And it's been interesting to be going to the same conference here in the Midwest, the Midwest Organic Sustainable Education Services, also known as MOSES Conference, for the past five years at this point, that the first year that I organized a queer farmer meetup, I heard actually through my advisor, one of my mentors who was there, heard word that, like, someone in the hallway was saying, like, oh, they're having a queer farmer meetup, you know, I guess anything can happen here nowadays. So initially having that pushback, and now this past year, we had a full conference with 80 people, it was an hour and a half session, extremely well attended, one of the board of directors was there and was saying how grateful he was to be in that space, that he is a gay son, and so grateful for all those gay kids out there that turn around their parents' minds, but it's been cool for me to be able to track the organizational changes over the past five years, but at the same time still see that they feel quite surfacy and not just to pick on this one organization. I think this is pervasive in the food industry, in the agriculture industry, that many of the changes are, okay, we'll give you this representation. Okay, we'll make some bathrooms be gender neutral rather than deeply interrogating why everyone on the board may be white and why most of the staff is white themselves and heterosexual and the power dynamics that have led to those things. I had a really lovely reception at a Australia farming conference. It was down in Tasmania and I was doing the you know little queer farmer meetup and a lot of straight farmers came to our little session. I shouldn't say a lot. It was like a 12 person group and most people were straight. So it felt like a lot.
0: I mean, that's pretty significant, though, because I'm th- even thinking about settings outside of farming, and that would be that would be a good turnout, right? Yeah, so.
1: yeah, it felt lovely. And then to have some of these bright-eyed, straight, white women be listening to the stories of the queer farmers in the group and their experiences with maybe being pushed off their family land, uh, finding out that their neighbors voted against the marriage equality vote, um, feeling isolated. And having these farmers just feel so deeply sad for their queer farming peers. And then when we got back into the large group and shared out from the workshop, it was actually the straight women who were raising their hands and then kind of encouraging the rest of this organization of like, you know, and we need to do better and we need to have more things like this. And did you know that our bathrooms don't have options for people who are trans? And no one here is asking about pronouns. So it's been cool for me to see some of the ways in which in places where I expect there to be pushback from straight community that they sometimes are the ones that get on board the most and are most vocal. Because yeah, that's like um, a norm that it's very hard for people who are marginalized to always be the ones who have to advocate for themselves. And it's important to have those people at times who are allies and in that position to do that advocacy,
0: to step up and do that.
1: Still centering the queer voices and the queer experience or the marginalized experience, but to maybe make that inroad.
0: Okay, perfect. That's a really useful and I think still inspiring note to end on. So thank you again for joining us. Thank
1: you for having me, Kyle.
0: Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music, undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance.